0: Jennifer Elder and Paul Collins have grappled with autism since the diagnosis of their son, Morgan, in 2002. Paul, a literary historian, has traced autism hidden between the lines of history. Jennifer has written and illustrated books for children with autism. They help us see beyond controversies over causes and cures. They pull back a curtain on the mystery and meaning of this place on the spectrum of what it means to be human.
1: I think that cuts right to the heart of both of our works, that there's a spectrum and that we see the world in a completely different way now. You know, it's not just Morgan. We now see these traits running through our family and through society. I'm Krista Tippett on Being. Stay with us.
0: One child in every 110 in the U.S. is now diagnosed to be somewhere on the spectrum of autism. And as awareness rises, so too do studies, treatments, and speculation about causes and cures. For years, I looked for a different way into learning about autism and thinking about it as part of contemporary life. I found two great teachers in Jennifer Elder and Paul Collins. Life with their son with autism, as they tell it, has stretched their understanding of the spectrum of what it means to be human. Jennifer, an artist, has authored books about autism for children and families. Paul, a literary historian, has pursued glimpses of autism across history and society before it had a
2: name. Autism wasn't even really conceptualized uh, or named until the early 1940s. And and in fact, there was, to me, a really fascinating study done in the 1970s when a lot of mental institutions were being shut down. And coming out, they found that the majority of the patients in these places were autistic. So they've, they've always been part of society, but I think for a long time, they weren't being diagnosed, and they were actually being hidden away, so to speak. They were being institutionalized, so they just weren't a visible presence for a lot of people.
0: From APM American Public Media, I'm Krista Tippett. Today, on Being, Autism and Humanity. The term autism comes from the Greek word for self, autos, a condition in which a person seems to live in his or her own world. Two physicians described autism and gave it the same name nearly simultaneously in the mid-1940s, though they were an ocean apart. One of them was the Austrian Hans Asperger, for whom a form of high-functioning autism, Asperger's Syndrome, is named. As Paul Collins puts it, autism entails both disability and ability. Difficulties with human relationship, for example, can be the flip side of a fierce aptitude for logic and a capacity for singular focus. I spoke with Paul Collins and Jennifer Elder in two thousand seven. Five years earlier, during a routine checkup when their son Morgan was two and a half, a doctor had first suggested that he might have autism. Until then, his normal had been normal to them.
2: We, we really had no basis of comparison because, uh, for one thing, we'd been moving around a lot. So we, we didn't have uh, a situation where we could watch someone else's child developing over the course of several years and, mm-hmm. and actually notice that the sort of the milestones were progressing really differently for other people's kids.
1: But, you know, we used to um, notice uh, that what we just thought was his unique personality. Like when he was a yeah. baby, we used to joke that he was inscrutable because he would just look at you, you know, for a long time without sort of smiling or laughing. And But we didn't know that was anything, you know, there was anything strange about it. But I also, I mean,
0: toddlers are... <laughs> <laughs> kind of strange, eccentric beings and inscrutable in a way, and you know you also knew that he was smart and you knew that he was
2: happy um, that was one thing that yeah that really threw me off actually was that he um well he had what's what's known as uh as cognitive scatter, which is that some of his abilities uh were were quite advanced for his age mm-hmm. uh, or at least progressing you know quite typically, and uh, others had barely progressed at all and you know, you usually think of developmental delays in a child as being kind of an all-around thing. Yeah. Um, and so when I saw that some abilities were really coming along, I, I just assumed, well, you know, he's he's a late talker, yeah, um, but, you know, he's doing so well in all these other things, so things must be going fine. And uh, not realizing, of course, that that's really one of the uh, almost defining characteristics with autism, that some abilities can actually become quite advanced.
0: Right. And I guess what what I'm learning, and and I think you describe on so many levels is it's not one thing, autism, right? It's a spectrum of human character and behavior. So you still have to get to know your child and what it means that, that your child has this diagnosis.
1: And I, I think that cuts right to the heart of both of our works, that there's a spectrum and that we we see the world in a completely different way now. You know, it's not just Morgan. We now see these traits running through our family and through society. Mm-hmm.
2: That was something that really was kind of a turning point for me, too, which was that, you know, I, I think initially when we had the, the doctor saying, well, you need to have him looked at for developmental delays, it seemed like something had happened to our child. Right. You know, we, we had brought him in and he was fine, and then we brought him out of the office and he was not. And and uh, it was just very mystifying. And over time, what I came to see was that, yeah, not only is there a broad spectrum of autistic behavior, but yeah, because these traits actually run through families and and not in the form of full-blown autism necessarily, Mm -hmm. but you can see some of the traits very commonly, particularly in male relatives. Mm. Um, When I I first heard about that and started looking around at my own family, it it really transformed my understanding of my family and, and in some ways... Uh, people like my brother and my father started to make a a, a lot more sense. (laughs) Uh, And I think that was the same for Jennifer with her family as well. Uh, Well,
0: let's talk about that. That's one of the things you write about in the book, that you discovered that, in fact, there is data. There are studies about not just traits of autism, but professions, right? Engineers and artists and scientists tend to be in families where autism turns up
2: yeah there's been really fascinating research on this done by uh, Simon Baron Cohen mm-hmm. um, at Cambridge University. and what he noticed essentially was that there seemed to be a lot of autistic siblings in particular um, of students of his who were in science related majors and you know math students as well, and engineering students and that kind of thing. And so uh, initially, he simply looked at, uh, just sort of did an informal study comparing English majors and the rates of autism in their families with uh, a number of science majors. And uh, so the science majors that he was looking at had rates that were like five and six times that of autism in their families. Interestingly enough, the English majors had much, much higher rates of manic depression in their families, <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> which is suddenly all makes sense. <laughs> So, and, and then when he expanded to studying the, the broader population, he, he found that this held up, that actually when you looked at the professions that family members of, of people with autism were in, um, they tended to be in things like accounting, engineering, computer programming, um, and had very low rates of employment in fields like uh, sales, for okay, example, which right, is all right. about <laughs> social contact. Right.
0: And, One way you described this thing was solitary professions requiring deep focus and abstraction. Which also includes artists in that category.
2: Yeah, and there's actually uh, musicians were very uh-huh. highly represented in, in, in particular, uh, but also visual artists uh, among these families that he was looking at. And and the interesting thing about that for me is the, the first reaction a lot of people have when they hear his research is they'll say, well, sure. My, my dad's an engineer. I mean, in, in my case, my dad is an engineer. Okay. And, my, my, and my brother is uh, is finishing a Ph.D. in computer science. And so the reaction you have is, well, it's a little bit of shock initially because he's he's right. He pegged their professions pretty well. Right. Um, but at the same time, you think, well, but they're not actually autistic. Yeah. And that's sort of his, his point, uh, really, is that these traits in... in um, a much less highly expressed form or less overexpressed form, I guess you could say, naturally make people much better fitted for these professions.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you also, among your adventures, Paul, you went to
2: Microsoft. Strangely enough, it was actually for my first book Uh uh, that that had come out the year before at that point uh, called Banford's Folly, which was a book about sort of failed or forgotten inventors and artists. And... uh, so they they brought me up to just do a discussion with their employees. And uh in the middle of all this, uh you know, as they were inviting me up, all, all this started happening with Morgan with his diagnosis. And so I asked them, well, you know, while I'm up there, do you happen to have anyone working on autism related issues? Because I had heard a rather a lot of uh whisperings among people that there was a you know, a fairly major autism community uh in, right. in a lot of computing companies. And they said, "Well, yes, <laughs> we certainly do have a lot going on here in, in that regard." For me, the, the strangest moment there, uh, I was I was speaking, I think primarily with the uh, what they described as the math wing of Microsoft. So we had a lot of people doing sort of theoretical mathematical work and working on algorithms and things like that. And uh, I was addressing this room, and all these people were working on their laptops as I was talking even before I started talking. And
0: so they were looking at the laptops rather than at you while you were yeah, speaking? Yeah, for, mm-hmm. for
2: the entire speech. And at first I thought, wow, these are really busy people. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, but then I, I realized uh, from, from some of the questions that they were then asking that they were in fact listening to me. And afterwards, I, I mentioned it to someone like them and they said, well, they were watching the webcast of you. I was like, 15 feet away from some of these people. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And she said, well, that's just how they prefer to interact. But, you know, I I think at one level, when you see something like that, you go, that's kind of strange. But at the same time, I think it's also really great that we live in an age where people who who may, you know, I think in the past probably wouldn't have gone to a lecture like that at all, just because of all the social contact that it would have entailed that in the past it would have been just much too uncomfortable or you know kind of painful for them to deal with. Mm-hmm.
0: And I mean again the point you've been making is that it is that very same personality type set of skills that enables them to do this work somehow.
2: The way that that Simon Baron-Cohen described it to me was he said all these professions I look at have a systematizing tendency. Mm-hmm. You know, they're seeking an internal logic within a system. And that lends itself beautifully to fields like mathematics or computing, which in a lot of ways is basically a subset of math. Um, And, you know, at the same time, it makes it extraordinarily difficult for them to deal with the uh, highly illogical world of people. Yes. (laughs)
0: I found it fascinating that one of your responses, Paul, to, the, to Morgan's diagnosis was to kind of go back in history and look for, um, for autism in history and in, and in the human imagination. And, and you also found that you'd kind of been staring it in the face in a historical character who had already come to fascinate you. And that was Peter the Wild Boy. And tell me about that.
2: Yeah, that was kind of unnerving for me in a way. Yeah. I, I, I'd been working on um, sort of taking notes for, for a potential book on on this uh, fellow, Peter the Wild Boy, who was a, uh, a feral child found in the Black Forest in 1725. And uh, King George took an interest in him and brought him back to the court in uh, in London. And he wound up really becoming this figure right at the center of the intellectual life of the time um he was taken into the uh court physician's home uh, dr arbuthnot who was someone who was friends with jonathan swift and with defoe hmm. um he knew people like uh halley and, and newton and so i, I mean th- this guy went from living in the forest to suddenly being at the intellectual center of europe and uh, and yet he didn't he didn't really talk All and right. so He was this figure that everybody expounded all these theories about, and he was kind of at the silent center of it, you know, almost this Harpo Marx kind of in the middle of of all this intellectual ferment going on around him. And it really fascinated me. And nobody had actually written a book about him. So I I was starting to research a book on him. And it was in the middle of that 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 I started realizing that this looked pretty clearly like an early case of autism. And because there were so many people writing descriptions of him, he was really the talk of the town for for quite a while in London.
0: Right. You wrote, uh, you know, he haunted the births of romanticism, zoology, and even the theory of evolution. I mean, he was-
2: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, R- Rousseau had him in mind when he was talking about the, sort of the concept of the noble savage. People thought that, that Peter was any, uh, a perfect example of the state of nature. Hmm. Uh, and that here was what people were like before civilization had somehow taken over. Right. And the funny thing being that he had absolutely nothing to say about it and kind of couldn't care less. Um, he was just sort of in his own world. And, uh, uh, yeah, for me, you know, he was this fascinating kind of uh, mirror to hold up to the age, to, to look at all of the people's reactions to him. but. That actually started before Morgan got diagnosed, and right. after he got diagnosed, <laughs> I had this just weird moment where I realized I've been studying an autistic figure from history for months, and I've got you know someone with autism right in front of me.
0: You can read a moving essay by the late scientist Stephen Jay Gould about his son with autism at onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett, On Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, autism and humanity, exploring autism in one family's life and in history and society with Paul Collins and Jennifer Elder. Their first son, Morgan, has autism. Jennifer's illustrated book, Autistic Planet, imaginatively incorporates some of the motor and sensory traits that can make people with autism say they feel alien in human society. These include rocking, hand flapping, and extreme sensitivity to sound, touch, and texture. Paul took the title of his book about autism, Not Even Wrong, from a criticism that the physicist Wolfgang Pauli used to make of his colleague's. He would suggest that their way of thinking and seeing something was so far off the mark, so untestable, as to be not even wrong. One of the classic characteristics of autism is what researchers call a lack of a theory of mind. That is, a lack of understanding that other people don't know what you know, don't want what you want. Therefore, Paul Collins points out, words like believe and think and know take on different nuance.
2: Morgan, I think, like any autistic person, really interacts a lot with the outside world. Uh, in fact, most of his speech uh, consists of either of demands from the outside world, <laughs> you know, very, uh, asking for things in a very instrumental way, yeah, or of repeating things that he hears, uh, which is a really common uh, tendency is known as echolalia. Um, that you know, lines from books or or things from songs or things on TV in a way, his mind is kind of filled with all these cultural artifacts that he kind of replays over and over again. So he's actually, in his own way, he's really fascinated with the outside world. And, and he interacts with us. There are times that he really wants us to to be sitting with him or to explain something. But it's entirely on his own terms. You know, when he doesn't feel like interacting, he simply won't respond. Mm-hmm. And and you, know, you don't expect that from people normally. You expect people to at least take a a polite interest when you approach them about whatever. And for him, it's really, you know, either he wants to interact or he doesn't, and there's kind of no in-between.
1: You know, I've, I've often uh, explained it to people who weren't familiar with uh, an autistic child that it's like uh, somebody watching a video, and you're trying to get their attention, but... Uh, at the worst, they don't hear you at all, or at best, you're sort of bugging them, and they try to (laughs) swat you away. And that's what Morgan's like all the time. He's got sort of a video running in his head, and uh, you really have to get up in there to uh, get his attention.
2: The funny thing, too, is that I'm kind of like that. (laughs) Yes. Well, again, there's that
0: spectrum, isn't there?
2: Yes. And, and, I mean, that was one of the really... Strange moments for me, and particularly when I saw uh, Baron Cohen's work, was recognizing these traits within myself. and Like what
0: give me an example.
2: When I'm uh, focused on on an object or a project or whatever, it has the effect for me of almost uh, as if I'm turning my ears off. I, I just don't hear what's going on around me. And the ironic thing for me is that I can't imagine having a career as a historian. Without having that tendency, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, because I, I'm able to go into archives for hours at a time and just focus, and it's like uh, diving underwater or something. I just don't even hear the outside world.
1: Mm. And we think this might be uh, part of the connection between autism and what you might call genius is the ability to focus on something single-mindedness. You know, uh, yeah. Absolutely, because uh-huh. in order to come to a, a conclusion, you may have to think about something without uh, you know without your mind wandering. For a you know terribly long period of time, and Paul can do that. But of course, when I when I want to get his attention for a minor matter, it <laughs> yes. can be difficult. Right. It's
2: almost like having to shake me awake or something when mm. I'm working on something. And and so I, I think you know what Morgan experiences is is a much higher degree of that. But it, it's something that's I think helped me a lot in working with him. That I I, I don't take it personally that he's somehow ignoring me or something. Yeah. I, I actually understand. <laughs> Uh, he's not trying to be difficult. He's frustrated because he just he doesn't know why we don't immediately get it. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: You know, I think it also leads uh, a lot of autistic people to uh, regard other people uh, with sort of a detached, almost scientific, observational style. You know, um, why is that? Okay. Well, <laughs> I don't. Uh, e- e- you may have heard Oliver Sacks wrote a book called An Anthropologist on Mars, yes. uh, t- referring to Temple Grandin, you know, the way she would observe uh, other people, other people's behaviors, as if she was studying a foreign species. Right. You know, And um, you may have recognized Simon Baron-Cohen's name because his cousin has become very famous, Sasha Baron-Cohen. <laughs> yes, right. I did. And I read that in your book. I,
2: I'd love we, to be at that family dinner. Yeah,
1: really. <laughs> but I actually see a connection. You know, I sort of wonder. Uh, we've we've often wondered if um, if there may be a little bit of a uh, streak. I don't even know if I should say this on the radio, but some sort of streak <laughs> of autism running through that family. Because um, in my first book, I one of the the people that I profiled was uh, Andy Kaufman. Uh, to whom many people have compared Sasha Baron Cohen and yes. Andy Andy Kaufman. That was what most of his humor was about, trying to. Um Trying to get a reaction out of people and studying, and not everything that he did was funny. You know, a lot of it was just very uncomfortable, and uh, some people feel the way the same way about Sasha Baron Cohen's humor. But I think he's really, you know, that's what he's looking for is some kind of reaction, and it's not always laughter, right? But you know, just observing sort of the human condition and human reactions that way is sort of an autistic trait.
0: When you described Morgan again as a toddler. He had these abilities, right? He knew things. I remember this. there's a scene in the book where you had somebody testing him, and he's running by saying, isosceles triangle, rhombus, (laughs) right? He's going through a geometry phase or something. But I wrote in my margins of the book when I read that, you know, where does this come from? I mean, there's there's some real mystery in this, isn't it? I mean, across that spectrum, as you're talking about.
2: You know, one of the most curious things to watch, really, with Morgan has been... You know, the, the, as parents, we can create an environment for him where we we try to encourage uh, certain things, or just try to provide a rich environment for him to learn in. But he's very self motivated in terms of what he decides he wants to pay attention to, mm-hmm. and what he finds interesting. And if he finds something interesting, he just has this incredible focus upon it, uh, and and will develop so quickly. And I think that's that's very common in in terms of autistic spectrum kind of behavior that, you know, Asperger described, you know, yeah, people who uh, could do advanced mathematics uh, among, among the children of his who were patients, but if you asked them what their name was, they couldn't tell you. They didn't even know how to respond. And uh, I mean, it's sort of an extreme form of it in a way, but it's, it, that really almost epitomizes that, that condition that if there is something that, that captures their focus, it becomes an immensely powerful uh, tool in many cases. You know, if, particularly if one's interested in the sciences or the arts or whatever. But one of the strange things about autism is is that it's it's very difficult to harness that. Right. You know, it, I mean, you can try to put things in front of a child and and in the hope that, well, maybe they'll be really interested in this and that'll be a constructive thing and you know perhaps it will be good for them in terms of learning a profession or having a hobby or or whatever. But it's it's almost impossible to be able to guess what it will be. That captures that focus because they're really not interested in your judgment of what's important and what isn't.
0: (laughs) But you know the same thing is true of any child you know I mean we don't (laughs) none of us knows what is going to grab our children's attention or
1: where their talents will be. Morgan is Passionate about musical instruments, uh-huh. but he's equally as passionate about YouTube videos. You know, right. they, there's something that seems very trivial to us, and just as important as the symphony orchestra to Morgan. I see.
2: Well, and, and specifically, he's become fascinated by the, um, what's it the bumpers or whatever the the the
1: logos, the, think, the logos yeah. that
2: uh, film production companies run right before a movie or a TV show starts, like the little uh, Paramount Mountain logo and things really? like that. Or the Universal opening that shows the revolving planet. Uh-huh. Um, and there's a whole community of people that are fascinated. The people will put... Um... There
1: are hundreds of these posted on YouTube. Yeah.
2: <laughs> People and, compile like histories of them into in the videos, and they're they're passionate and they, about they it. They rework
1: <laughs> them. They make their own versions on uh, on their computers and parodies. And uh, we had no idea. You know, it's funny. We don't <laughs> usually think that Morgan has any social influences, but he actually picked this up from another boy at school who happened to be watching these YouTube videos one day. And An- they, another yeah. autistic boy. Another autistic yeah. child. Yeah. <laughs>
0: onbeing.org you can explore the community of movie logo enthusiasts that paul collins and jennifer elder talked about and watch the youtube videos that captivate their son morgan you can also listen again to this show read the free transcript of it and stay on top of all of our work there are many ways to do this subscribe to our email newsletter or our podcast find all of this and much more at onbeing.org Coming up, more conversation with Jennifer Elder and Paul Collins, including how life with their son with autism makes them think fundamentally differently about what it means to be human. And we hear from Star Trek's Mr. Spock, a hero of mine and, as I've learned, of many people with autism. I'm Krista Tippett. This program comes to you from APM, American Public Media. I'm Krista Tippett, today on Being, Autism and Humanity. My guests, Jennifer Elder and Paul Collins, are a painter and a literary historian. Their first son, Morgan, has autism. In art and writing, they've also explored autism in historical, medical, and social perspective. The Centers for Disease Control estimates that 1 in 110 children in the U.S. falls on the spectrum of autism. This ranges from severe impairment to the high-functioning personality known by some as Asperger's syndrome. And as many as 30% of people across the spectrum of autism may exhibit extraordinary skills or talents, often mathematic or artistic in nature, though they are often hindered from applying those productively because of interactive deficits, compulsive motor traits, and sensory sensitivities that also mark their lives. This is a recording of the pianist Glenn Gould. He hated the sound of clapping and being watched, dressing up for concerts and shaking hands. He gave up public concerts at the age of 32 and recorded his most famous music alone in his studio, often humming unselfconsciously while he played. This 1955 rendition of Bach's Goldberg Variations is one of the best-selling classical albums of all time. Jennifer Elder and Paul Collins.
2: I think for me one of the most curious things to watch with Morgan has particularly been his interest in music because there seem to be things with music that he just naturally seems to understand. I'm, mm-hmm. I, I'm fairly sure he has perfect pitch. Um,
0: and that's quite common, isn't
2: it? Um, yeah, that turns up a lot with autistic children, right. And he'll he'll just pick out tunes by ear and and play them on the piano and that kind of thing. That, you know, for example, there there are a few things that, that are almost uh, as soon as you hear about it, you just go, "Oh, that again." <laughs> and one of them is, uh, you know, perfect pitch or or the ability to pick out things on a piano like that. Another thing is a fascination, for example, with uh, mass transit systems. Hmm. A lot, a lot of autistic kids are fascinated by bus schedules and bus numbers and uh, railways. And they
0: memorize them, don't they?
2: Yeah, they memorize a lot of this stuff. There's actually a tremendous fascination with Thomas the Tank Engine among a lot of autistic kids. And I think it's because there's a whole little self-contained universe of this island and all these named uh, engines. And the other thing is, too, this occurred to me recently, if you've ever seen Thomas the Tank Engine, the trains have faces on them, but they're not terribly expressive. There's only... You know, they don't have hundreds of facial muscles,
0: right? Right.
2: <laughs> the way humans do. They only have a few expressions, and so for I think for an autistic child, it's much easier to interpret the train than it is to interpret people.
1: <laughs> I remember somebody commenting one time that there are a lot of autistic children who were uh, big fans of Japanese animation or anime, and one of the uh, uh, right. reasons they thought was because in the uh, these animations the Expressions of emotion are so strong and um, clear cut. You know, there's yes. not a lot of nuance. They have wild hair and outfits, but their their mouths Ex- and their uh, eyes are yeah, yeah. If they're they're either furious or afraid uh-huh. or you know, and and it's there's not a lot of in between. So the, autistic kids can watch it fairly comfortably, knowing what's going on. There's no sort of there's nothing subtle to pick up on.
0: Mm-hmm. I've also read somewhere that many autistic children are um, feel a kind of affinity with characters like Spock in Star Trek, or I wondered about Commander Data as one of my Absolutely. heroes yes. in Star Trek, <laughs> the next generation. And I mean, is
1: that true of Morgan or, or other autistic children you know? He's a little young for, okay. for science fiction, but absolutely, the fact that you say that uh, you're a Data fan makes me think you might be one of us. I Kristen. know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. It made me wonder, too. because the, And there is in those characters in Spock and Data, the, the brilliance and, and the kind of perplexity at, in fact, how strange and complicated normal human beings are, right? With a range <laughs> of emotions and interactions and, and what a mess that is sometimes.
2: <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, th- I think, I mean, particularly when you have a character like Spock, who's supposed to be sort of of both worlds. Yes. Um, you know, he has one foot in the human world uh, and the other one isn't. And he's trying to figure it out and, and trying to somehow reconcile this. And, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of autistic people find him to be such a, a sort of a sympathetic character because they're, his situation kind of mirrors their own. They are very much part of our world and, and, you know, draw from it and, and actually help make a lot of the things in our world as well. And yet it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to them. And, and particularly the social interactions are just, uh, there's so much to social interactions that can't really be explained very logically. You just have to intuit them. And when you actually try to sit down and explain it to someone, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs>
0: Here's a scene with Mr. Spock that takes place around a campfire from the Star Trek movie, The Final Frontier. I believe we are required to engage in a ritual known as the sing-along.
2: That's great. I haven't sung around a campfire since I was a boy in Iowa. What are we going to sing?
0: Row, row, row your boat. Row, row, row your boat. I love row. Do you know row, 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 row your boat? That song did not come up in my research, Captain. The lyrics are, are very simple. Uh, the doctor and I will start it off, and then when we give you a signal, you
2: jump in. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Row Merrily, 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 gently gently down down the the stream. Merrily, 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 merrily. merrily, merrily, merrily. Like come on, Spock. Why didn't you jump in?
1: I was trying to comprehend the meaning of the words.
2: It's a song, you green blooded Vulcan. You sing it. The words aren't important. What's important is that you have a good time singing it. Oh, I am sorry, Doctor.
1: We'll be having a good time.
0: I've had uh, several conversations over the years about children as little philosophers and little theologians. You know, that in childhood we start asking these great existential questions. Where did we come from? Is there a God? If there's a God, who made God? (laughs) You know, um... And also ethical questions, like, why do people hurt each other? And I wondered, do you experience those kinds of questions, that kind of side to Morgan?
1: Now, I'm not sure how abstractly he thinks about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, m- my feeling, uh, and I won't speak for Paul since we have different feelings on this, but mm-hmm. I feel that uh, that we all come into this world with a sort of immediate natural relationship with God and so that for Morgan, he has that, you know, that's just the way it's always been for him. He has that relationship, and it's unaffected by whatever society has to say about it. But um, I think that we have to introduce ideas of ethics to him because this sort of thing just simply doesn't occur to him. He's certainly not cruel. Right. But getting back to the theory of mind, he just doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about what other people are experiencing.
0: Right. So I suppose if he's not, he can't really, he's perplexed by other people's reactions, then I suppose part of being kind or compassionate is about, would be such a complicated interaction kind of beyond the way he, the way way his mind
1: works. I don't think it's impossible for him. Mm -hmm. I just think that it needs to be taught because it doesn't come to him immediately the way it might come to us.
2: One thing we've actually had to teach Morgan with with his little brother is how to comfort hmm. his little brother, and 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 I mean we're still at the stage where uh, we have to remind him <laughs> that you know if uh, something happens and and uh, and Bramwell gets upset or if you know he falls down and skins his knee or that kind of thing, hmm. uh, that the appropriate thing to do is to ask if he's okay or to you know to give him a hug or something like that, and, and otherwise it, it doesn't really occur to him, and and not out of any. Uh, sort of cruel or, or, right. or callous sense of it, but just that it I think it really doesn't occur to them. And uh, that issue of empathy is a very difficult one, I think, for a lot of autistic people, um, because I, I think for those particularly not familiar with them, it may seem kind of pointedly callous when, in fact, it's, uh, I think, just a, it kind of comes down to a lack of, of understanding of mm-hmm. the situation a lot of the time, and, and they don't see the, the point in it.
0: So, I mean, Jennifer, when you say that you believe that we all come into the world with a relationship with God, but with Morgan, is that just more something that that you intuit, I suppose, because he doesn't talk about things the way non-autistic people talk about things. Is that what you're saying? It's just
1: yes. something you believe. Absolutely. That's right. And, um, y- you know, he doesn't speak very abstractly about anything. Mm-hmm. And, and um, the, the the sort of window into his soul that we have is usually... uh through a sort of a code that's based on the books and videos that he consumes. Hmm. So he often somehow puts together phrases and characters from books to express something. And, of course, nothing's coming to mind right now as I say that. But, you know, he will express something by way of mentioning, you know, the cat in the hat feels sad oh. or, or that sort of thing. Okay. That, and that's how he lets us know that he's thinking about somebody being sad. So we understand that when he's putting together these two other people meaningless uh, expressions that uh, they are his way of interpreting the world, which he does primarily through literature because he doesn't pick up on um, scenes in person. Hmm. Uh, You know, he picks up through scenes in books and videos what human interactions are about.
2: I think that human interactions are much too fleeting for him mm-hmm. to have a chance to interpret them whereas he'll read a book over and over again or watch a scene in a video over and over again um, and can really try to try to figure it out or or at least kind of memorize it as almost a kind of a script for for dealing with the world in, in a way that yeah the, the in-person interactions they're not repeatable in a consistent manner form so it's very difficult for him to figure them out
0: kind of makes you think that the 21st century is not a bad time to be born as an autistic person with all this rich world of media that we have?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I (laughs) I have no idea what autistic people, how they spent their time before the computer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm Krista Tippett on Being, a conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, autism and humanity. Until recent decades, autism was conflated with very different conditions such as schizophrenia and Down syndrome. Popular theories about autism blamed childhood trauma or bad mothering. Genetic research and brain studies may now gradually unravel the mystery of what causes or triggers autism. We may one day fully understand how it is related to the same family and social traits that give rise to art and science and logic. Jennifer Elder's book, Different Like Me, My Book of Autism Heroes, describes historical figures of great achievement who she and others believe might have been somewhere on the spectrum of autism. Among them are the scientist Isaac Newton, the primatologist Diane Fossey, the comedian Andy Kaufman, and the artist Andy Warhol. In his book, Not Even Wrong, Paul Collins writes this. Autists are described by others and by themselves as aliens among humans. But there's an irony to this, for precisely the opposite is true. They are us, and to understand them is to begin to understand what it means to be human. Think of it. A disability is usually defined in terms of what is missing. But autism is as much about what is abundant as what is missing, an overexpression of the very traits that make our species unique. Other animals are social, but only humans are capable of abstract logic. The autistic out-human the humans, and we can scarcely recognize the result. Jennifer, you also have this book. Different like me, my book of autism heroes, and it and it includes, you know, people like Albert Einstein and female mathematicians I've never heard of, and the first, what was it, the first African American scientist? Um, and yes, and I, I had never heard of most of these people. Yeah, I mean, some of them. I mean, Temple Grandin is in there, and there are those amazing stories and this this category of savants, which is associated with autism, and that is so fascinating and. You know, but then what I also know is that all autistic children are not gifted, and there's there's some new research about girls, in particular, autistic girls, that they have higher mm-hmm. rates of depression and suicide, and not necessarily these skill sets that autistic boys often have.
1: Right. And that is um, something that, you know, Paul and I have sort of spoken of this openly and Paul wrote about it. But um, Morgan does take antidepressants. Mm -hmm. And um, we feel like when he was first diagnosed, we resisted medicating him. And many of the other children that we knew, autistic children, were uh, medicated. But um, there came a point for him after we we made a move across country where he just became very distressed and and couldn't function and and it it
2: had actually been kind of building up for a while as he got older that he became more and more sensitive to things that frustrated him in the outside Mm -hmm. world and and more and more overstimulated by them and and really didn't know how to handle them and 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 would get very upset about it and the move really brought that to a head and so at, at that point it actually wasn't a difficult decision um because we also had a, a small child, and we're going to be thrashing around, and so there was a real physical danger at right. that point. And he kind of became his old self, mm-hmm. um, and and it was sort of a remarkable thing to see. And and his old self, not in the sense that suddenly he was no longer autistic; he's you know very much so. But right. he could be sort of happy in the self that he already had been. And that's also another thing about. The era that we live in that makes me feel extraordinarily fortunate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, there's no question that in a past era, uh, you know, even just 20, 30 years ago probably, I mean, for one thing, he might have been institutionalized from the outset. Yeah. But certainly, once uh, he became difficult to manage uh, physically and getting really frustrated and that kind of thing, he probably would have been institutionalized at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as it is, that's still a situation that a lot of parents find themselves brought to, where they have an autistic child. You were sort of bringing this up earlier that not all autistic children are going to be these wonderful prodigies and sort of miracle right. composing stories. composing
0: music and, and solving right. complex mathematical equations. And Yes. When you talked about Morgan as a toddler, you called him, you know, he was really happy and playful, right? He may not have been communicative yeah. in the way some children his age were, but um, would you still describe him as happy and, and playful at eight and a half
2: yeah, generally he's he's a, a really happy kid, and and usually when frustrations come about, it's it's just dealing with the outside world. When he's doing his own thing, uh, he's actually quite happy, hmm. and and that's one of those things. I think that's true for a lot of autistic kids, but by the same token, it's it's not true for some. There are some that that are just in a lot of distress much of the time and have to deal a lot with with issues of depression and things like that. Right, and and that is one thing I'm very hopeful about, that, you know, autism being a, a a condition with a very strong genetic element and one that clearly shapes your sort of neurological development from the get-go, I don't know that that science is necessarily going to come along with something that will somehow reverse all of that. It It seems mm-hmm. unlikely in that sense. But I do think that we live in an age where there's much more hope that some of the more challenging or really difficult aspects of it can at least be mitigated a great deal. And, and uh, I mean, that's already the case to some extent. Um, it makes me feel very fortunate to live in this time.
1: Yeah. yeah. That, that we're able to say, you know, we have a happy, healthy autistic child, which I think is something that previous generations were, right. were not encouraged put to put all think those, those words way. in a sentence together.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I was really struck by this, um, these lines, Paul, in your book, cause you were, I think along the lines we've been speaking, um, so Isaac Newton was another person in Jennifer's book, completely single-minded person who happened to be focusing, as you say, on something other people found important. Um, Right. (laughs) And you said there are Newtons of refrigerator parts and Newtons of painted light bulbs and Newtons of train schedules. And Isaac Newton happened to be the Newton of Newtonian physics, and you cannot have him without having the others too.
2: Yeah. And I, I think that's... Uh, I, mean, I mean, there's two things that that, that, that brings to mind, actually. I, I was in Italy not too long ago. Uh, for some reason, the uh, the book's actually been really popular over there. Hmm. Um, and uh, a, a journalist there asked me, well, what if we were able to do genetic screening for autism? Yeah. And I said, well, that's actually a really difficult question because... Uh, what are you prepared to lose? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if anyone would argue necessarily against uh, addressing issues of, of really profound autism and of, of some of the very real and profound difficulties that autistic people face. But those sorts of abilities and, and, and the traits that show up in the families around them, yeah, I don't know if you want to lose those. But the funny thing about that, too, is that it's it's very hard to control where that focus is going to go.
0: Yes, I mean, how does living with Morgan and the way you've had to think about autism, um, how does that change the way you think about some of these great existential questions or, you know, what, what it means to be human? How does it change the way you live? Um, think about yourself.
2: I, I think I've become, I, I would hope at least, much more patient mm-hmm. and empathetic with other people hmm. when, when they're acting in ways that I don't understand. Uh, I, I think that in the past, when someone seemed to be acting oddly or seemed to be sort of very socially awkward or d- just doing things that that seemed kind of unnerving or didn't make sense to me, I would think well what's what's that guy's problem and, and you know maybe avoid them and that's an, I think a natural reaction for anyone to have, yes. but at the same time when when I see that now, I actually find myself uh, asking that as a genuine question. Well, what is that person contending with, you know, or or what is it like for that person? Yeah, you
1: know, I wanted to say that uh, one thing um, that has come up with us is um, Morgan really loves the goodwill, which is not a, a place that I gave much thought. The goodwill, the, the store, the... Yes, uh-huh. I have to say that Portland, Oregon has some of the finest Goodwills I have <laughs> ever experienced in my life. <laughs> okay, and and Morgan will ask for the goodwill, and uh, and we love to take him there because it's I never would have thought of this before, Morgan, but it's a place that's very friendly to people with disabilities. And when I'm there, I often see other hmm. other people with developmental disabilities and people who I might not have noticed before. And now I do. Now I think about, yeah. you know, how to make their world as comfortable as possible. And that's that's just a, a place where they can be, <laughs> you know, that's comfortable and accepting. And you really do when you're there. You feel like you're part of a community, even if you've never seen, you know, if, hmm. if it's a, a store full of strangers to you that I, it gives me another perspective on, uh, on interacting with people who might be invisible otherwise.
0: Jennifer Elder is the author of illustrated books for children and families, including Different Like Me, My Book of Autism Heroes, and Autistic Planet. Paul Collins' book about autism is Not Even Wrong, Adventures in Autism. He edits the Collins Library for McSweeney's Books and is an associate professor of English at Portland State University. There is a whole other hour of my conversation with Paul Collins and Jennifer Elder that didn't make it onto the radio. There's so much we had to leave out, including more helpful stories about how Paul and Jennifer initiate contact with their son, physically and emotionally. Download that entire unedited interview and this produced show for free through our podcast, email newsletter or website. At OnBeing.org, we've also compiled a collection of writings about autism, including Paul Collins' essay about the difficult decision he made to put his son on antidepressants. He's called it the most important thing he's ever written. And over the years, we've heard from parents of children with autism as well as adult listeners on the autism spectrum. If you have an experience or perspective to share on this, connect with others at onbeing.org or on our Facebook page, the URL, facebook.com slash onbeing. This program is produced by Chris Hegel, Nancy Rosenbaum, and Susan Leem. Anne Breckbill is our web developer. Special thanks this week to Dr. Andrea Bieberick, Dr. Barbara Luskin, and Dr. Sam Morgan. Trent Gillis is our senior editor. Kate Moose is executive producer. And I'm Krista Tippett.
2: On Being is supported by the Ford Foundation. Working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at fordfoundation.org and the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lillian Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation.
0: Next time, I speak with Jane Gross. She created the New Old Age blog at the New York Times. She is an eloquent voice on the experience so common in our time of caring for aging parents. She has personal wisdom and practical counsel. Please join us. This is APM American Public Media.